Hey, how are you? I'm great. How are you? Good, good. Thanks for taking the time to do this. We were speaking a lot on the Proof uh, Discord and also on Twitter Spaces, but this is the first time we really speak one-on-one, so uh, it's going to be cool, man. Grells was insane. How was your experience with that? Yeah, I mean, it, it was totally nuts. I At the start of uh, kind of the Grails experience when the art started coming out, you know, I thought I knew what I was going to do. And then every day I'd think, you know, is that the best route? Maybe I'll mint this Grail instead. And I was so close, um, you know, up until two days before the mint, I was like, sure, I was going to mint number 11, right? Because I, oh my God. You know, I thought at the end of the day, um, I, I don't really know a lot of the artists behind the grail, so I'll just mint my favorite art-wise, and that was number 11. And then I convinced myself over the last two days that it made more sense to mint, you know, the grail I thought might be done by the most, you know, popular or valuable artist. So I ended up minting, you know, number one, which was Gary Vee, and, you know, obviously is a, a good mint, but not nearly as as good as as number 11. So yeah, so so who did a, you think who did you think it was yeah. number 1 in your prediction? Yeah, so I thought um I thought it was either Gary or I thought it was Beeple um with an outside outside chance of it being Dimitri. Um so I thought, you know, if it's one of those three it'll be, you know, pretty valuable. Um mm-hmm. so it made sense to go that route whereas with number 11 I don't know if you saw, but there was some speculation that it was done by someone named David Yang. Yeah. He's a kind of under the radar artist, right? So I was a little worried about minting that and it being worth, you know, sub one ETH, even yeah. though I really like the art. And it made so much sense. Like when I saw that on the Proof Discord, I was like, it really looks like something that that artist was doing. Uh, it, was, yeah. it's, it was very similar to one of his pieces. <laughs> you know, I, I wonder if he's seen... Um, like what's come about as as a result of it? It'd, It'd be, be so funny. funny. Like <laughs> just like this is the the artist be- behind the protoglyph that we thought in proof. Like that was the artist. Yes. Um. So tell me about your y- yourself. Like what was your introduction to Web three? Sure. So I guess my first introduction to Web three kind of was um in I think early 2019 or something like that where. I found myself at a, an event and the event was a group of people mm-hmm. that were focused on tokenizing real world assets, putting these assets on chain um, and then providing, you know, increased liquidity by having, you know, tokens associated with these assets. And naturally as someone with a bit of a background in commercial real estate, it was a, you know, very interesting thing. The concept being that you could take a, a physical building, put it on chain and then issue a token relating to to the building, meaning that all of a sudden you'd have a piece of commercial real estate, which historically is a very illiquid asset. All of a sudden you unlock a lot more liquidity. So I thought that was really interesting at the time. And I looked into it more and started speaking to people in, in kind of this area of the space. And unfortunately, you know, a lot of it, um, you know, made sense conceptually, but from a legal standpoint, you know, wasn't really realistic. So mm-hmm. I kind of took a step back. And then as the NFT craze kind of started last year, I had a, a few friends who got into NFTs and told me about them. And that sort of slowly kind of uh, spiraled into uh, almost an obsession, I suppose, with with Web3. Yeah, 
It's very similar. Like uh, it, for for me, I didn't start that early though. Like it was, mm-hmm. I think it was only, it was honestly like a little bit in a year ago, maybe not even like a year ago that I got into NFTs. And and it's funny because I actually got into it via Gary V, right? Like with his okay. V friends and everything. Like that was like my first step into it. And the more I got to understand like the, basically like the technology and, and the ethos behind everything Ethereum, yeah. the more I got interested and the more I, I kind of understood that everything would be uh, like made into a token in some way. Um, I saw in a recent tweet that you made like a couple of days ago or might be a week ago that you talked about the state of NFTs and how so many of the projects are overvalued. And I feel yeah. like this is a, a great moment to talk about it because I feel like in the last two days, we went into like a little bit of a bear market. Mm-hmm. Um, so what are your thoughts on that? Do you think like we're in a bubble? Like, just curious, what are you thinking? Yeah, I mean, it's a really complicated question. I'm not sure I have the best answer, but I do think it's almost undeniable that there, the vast amount of NFT projects are significantly overvalued. And that if NFTs are to be, you know, core to daily life 10 years from now, the average NFT is going to cost a fraction of what the average NFT currently costs. You know, that being said, do I think all of NFTs are in a bubble? You know, I'm not sure. Um, could I see like CryptoPunks or Apes, for instance, um, be worth 10% of what they are currently? Like, yeah, I, I guess. But do I see them going down like 98% or something like that? You know, probably not. So I, I'd say... Um, large portions of the NFT market, you know, are in a bubble, but there are definitely projects that are, you know, building like proper companies um, that maybe they're overvalued, but they're not, um, you know, overvalued to, uh, you know, a certain degree, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, like with that in mind, I, I do think we're gonna, the NFT market's going to look totally different, you know, three years from now, five years from now, maybe even two years from now. And, you know, the main differences I see is, is going to be, you know, probably a lot lower entry price points for strong collections. You know, right now, a uh, average project mint is, you know, a few hundred dollars at the very least. You know, for most people, that's, you know, really not affordable. I think NFTs are going to be, you know, tens of dollars um, for most, you know, starter NFT projects. And then the other thing is, you know, I think project supplies are going to go up a lot. We have a certain amount of people in the NFT ecosystem now, but if NFTs are still around three to five years from now, you know, it seems obvious that we're going to have 10x, 100x the amount of participants. And that's also going to mean that, you know, a 10,000 collection is going to be way too small and, you know, maybe 100,000 collections will will become the norm. Also, like the more there is, maybe your mint price will be lower because I feel like especially in the in the past like six months there's been such a shift from you know i remember like there were a lot of projects minting for like zero like 0.05 eth and then at a certain point like two three months ago like everything started to become like 0.1 uh 0.15 0.2 even now like a lot of times it's like 0.5 one eth you know we don't really understand like what's substantial behind that like what are the you know a lot of these projects also like kind of like to sugarcoat everything with a roadmap, right? Like yeah. it's like, oh, we're going to do all this stuff. But then again, you know, it's 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 kind of like early Web 2 when everybody says like, 
hey, I'm going to build like this crazy company. Are they actually going to build it? Where does one person get educated? Where, where do you suggest them to start uh, the process of knowing how to gauge a project? Yeah, I mean, it's really difficult. I think, you know, two things. First, I think, um, you know, someone who's interested in NFTs shouldn't just go out and, and buy an NFT right away, especially if it's a significant amount of money. I think it's definitely worthwhile, you know, spending time on Twitter, spending time in discords for, you know, weeks or months, kind of just seeing the way these projects unfold before you actually put any money kind of into the ecosystem. And then the second thing is, like, I, I really don't believe in this kind of degen kind of stuff where you're you're just minting for minting sake. You know, every NFT project I buy into, pretty much I research it as if I was researching, a, you know, a, a public company to, you know, buy stock it. You know, if people want to be able to invest in NFTs for the long term, they need to not only take a long-term focus, but they need to seriously inv investigate these projects, uh, especially if they're putting in, you know, any sort of significant amount of money. You know, if you're, you know, putting in a hundred bucks, you know, maybe it's not such a big deal, but if you're talking about putting thousands of dollars in or even potentially tens of thousands of dollars, I, I think it's very important to, you know, spend as much time as possible researching a project before you put any sort of money into it. Yeah, I think like the 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 accessibility that's gonna come out of you know the the next few months. Like I, I know like we also talked about like Coinbase uh, releasing their NFT platform. You know, I think that's gonna make it even more mainstream, more accessible to more people, lower barriers to entry, but also it's more dangerous because you know yeah. everybody can do it. Yeah, and I mean another thing with the stock market is. If you're a public company, you have all sorts of filing requirements, right? I can look up any public company and I can get a detailed overview of their quarterly financials, of their annual financials, of any you know SEC-related disclosures they need to make. There's nothing like that for NFT projects. You know, in many cases, you don't even know what country the founders are from, or you don't even know um, if the founders have a criminal record. Or where the money from the mint is going. You have all sorts of kind of uncertainty, which makes investing in NFTs a lot more complicated and naturally a lot, you know, riskier. So, you know, I think that just emphasizes the importance of having, you know, strong rigor when you're, you know, researching an NFT project and naturally being skeptical. You know, I don't think anybody should look at an NFT project and think of, you know, what what's the best that could happen. You should always be thinking about, you know, what's the worst that could happen? Why is this team you know, anonymous or where are mint proceeds going or, you know, how likely are they able to deliver on the roadmap? Yeah. And I guess like it's, it's you being comfortable for the project to go to zero too, right? Like yeah. playing with, you know, again, like your point was, you know, a hundred bucks, like maybe in, in a lot of cases, you won't mind if you look like you lose a hundred or 50 bucks, but if it's like yeah. thousands, tens of thousands of dollars, then it's a different story or like, yeah, you know, it's just, like you have to put yourself in a situation where you're not over leveraged in some way. A hundred percent. And if we take an honest look at, you know, the market participants in NFTs, you know, a lot of them are over leveraged and, you know, they don't <laughs> like to admit that. And, you know, many of them don't realize they're over leveraged, but, you know, if all of a sudden floor prices decrease 50%, 70%, mm -hmm. 80%, 
you're going to see a lot of people get, you know, very nervous, you know, very quickly. And I think we saw, you know, some very minor indications of that, you know, the last couple of days where we've had a lot less liquidity in the market, just seeing how quickly floor prices have decreased, how nervous people get on Twitter. And, you know, we haven't seen any sort of major price decreases. You know, maybe in some cases we've seen projects down 20% or, you know, 50% over several weeks, but we haven't seen, you know, projects largely go down 80% or 90%. Yeah, we, uh, like, especially, I guess, like, the most popular one would be Bored Ape, right? Like, that mm-hmm. dropped significantly. But then again, you know, like, how do you properly price these things? How do you put a, a certain value to it? You know, the, the market decides it and also the fear of the market. Because right now I feel like there's such uh, volatility, that the fear in the market often is reflected in floor prices. Like yeah. th- that's also the thing that sucks with, you know, a floor price is that everything could be at a hundred ETH. And then if somebody decides to to drop it to 50 ETH, well, the floor price is at 50. Well, I mean, the thing with floor prices is everyone could be listed at a hundred ETH or above, but there may not be any buyers above 25 ETH, right? It's very mm. deceiving, particularly in, you know, more expensive and lower supply collections where, you know, the floor could be vastly different than the market, you know, pricing for a project. And you have to be very careful because you don't want to think you you own an NFT, which is worth 100 ETH, when in reality, you know, the, the most a buyer would be willing to pay is 30 ETH. Mm-hmm. I, I guess like, Honestly, for for me, if I was to kind of segue from what you were saying, like an add on on top of it, should I say, is, you know, follow projects from people that have accomplished other things, too. You know, yeah. that's why that's the main reason I got into Proof Collective, too, is I, I, I knew like about Kevin Rose in some way. Um, Gary Vee is the same thing, you know, like and once you kind of tip your toes in there, you can learn from, from other like, you know, smaller projects in some way. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, you know, although I, I am hesitant to invest in with teams that are anonymous, if it's an anonymous team, but they've accomplished, you know, major things in the space before, you know, a lot of it, that hesitation goes away. You know, at the end of the day, you're exactly right. Like experience kind of trumps everything. If a, a project has a an excellent idea, but they have no experience, you know, I'd rather bet on a project with a more mediocre idea, but an excellent team. Speaking about um, team and projects, tell us about Cottery Capital. Like, how did you start that? And um, why why is it called that? Like, where did the name come from, too? Sure. So we launched Cottery Capital a, a couple of weeks ago, um, but we've been building it for, I want to say, about three months. And the name, quite simply, Cottery means like a small group of people with kind mm-hmm. of shared interests. And that's what we were initially building for. We wanted to uh, create... The, the most simple to use, um, most efficient, most reliable platform for small groups of people to pool capital together and invest using a DAO structure. And <clears throat> the thinking behind it was um, about six months or so ago, I launched an investment DAO with a group of you know friends and people we know in the space. And we initially launched, wanted to launch the DAO you know, more than a year ago, but there weren't, wasn't any, you know, tooling that would work for us in the space. And when we eventually did launch it, we, you know, built it from the ground up. We wrote, you know, essentially custom smart contracts 
to create the DAO that we wanted. And we had to do that because there weren't any options, you know, in the space that would work for our needs. And after we launched, you know, I was thinking, you know, wow, this was a really difficult process for us. And, you know, not everyone has the the benefit of knowing people who can write smart contracts or have the capital to pay someone to write smart contracts. So I figured, you know, look, there must be other people like us. You know, maybe they want to invest with their friends. Maybe they want to pool capital with other smart people they know in Web3, but they're unable to because there isn't kind of purpose-built automated solution where they can go from like the idea of a DAO and a group of people to a working, you know, fully operating DAO in, you know, sub 10 minutes. So that was the big idea. And we started building, um, again, about three months ago. And, you know, we launched a couple of weeks ago. And right now we're offering two products. We're offering a kind of automated solution. You come to our, our website, Coterie.Capital, and you have an idea for a DAO. You fill out our, essentially a questionnaire and you go from zero to a DAO in about 10 minutes. It's, mm. you know very efficient. And then the second product we offer is kind of, you know, bespoke DAO creation. So let's say you have an idea for a DAO, but it's a little bit more complex than our, you know, automated setup where you want more of a hands-on kind of, you know, assistance. We can work with, you know, clients on, you know, creating any sort of DAO that they want that may not fit within the parameters of our existing solution. Okay. And, and did you have any, like, I know you're working with uh, with partners that have smart contract um, knowledge, but do you yep. do you yourself um, also like code and? No, so I'm I'm not technical at all. Um, my co-founder is the the technical genius behind it all. So uh, I'm more on the dis- business development side, I guess. And uh, he did all the the smart contract work, and then. You know, we, we had some freelance help on the on the website as well as the web design, mm-hmm. but it's, you know, pretty much just us two. What is a DAO in your words? Sure. So, I mean, a DAO itself is, you know, it has a lot of nuance. Like, uh, you know, it's defined as a decentralized autonomous organization. In my view, it's kind of a, a member-managed, member-owned entity that is non-hierarchical. And it can take many forms. It can take the form of, uh, you know, a group of people um, holding governance tokens, managing a, a decentralized finance protocol, or it could take the form of a, you know, a group of people investing in NFTs together. It could take the form of, you know, a group of people pooling capital to invest in, you know, nonprofit kind of um, endeavors. There's a lot of, you know, variance in terms of what a DAO can look like or, you know, their purpose, but I'd say largely, you know, the key characteristics are that it's, you know, decentralized, there's no hierarchy, Mm -hmm. um, and that is member owned. And do you normally like provide a, um, for governance tokens, like how does it usually work? Like, do you decide the amount of governance tokens you have? And, and I guess like depending on the implications of, well, how much the person invested, maybe they can get a governance token and the others are kind of like more watchers in some way? Sure. So with our platform, um, you decide how many, you, you can decide if you want to limit how many tokens are issued or you can have it be unlimited. So, you know, let's say you're not sure how many you want to issue at the start. You can kind of share 
or unique site we give you um, for people to mint tokens. Mm -hmm. And the result may be that, you know, you only have 10 people interested and they each mint, you know, 10 tokens on average. And then you have a hundred governance tokens, or maybe you have a lot more interest and that's 500 tokens. You know, with our platform, one of the things that makes our platform kind of unique is that the, the token, the governance token is actually an NFT. So that gives you, um, not only is it, you know, largely more gas efficient, but it also means you can actually attach an image um, to the token. And it kind of creates these, you know, effects of, you know, more community and you can, you know, trade the tokens on OpenSea and, you know, kind of that sort of thing. But, you know, with other DAOs, um, some don't use NFTs, some use ERC-20 tokens. Okay. Um, and that's, you know, I say more common amongst like DeFi focused DAOs. Okay, okay. So so in terms of, let's say, the amount of people that can be in a DAO, um, from what I heard is if, if it is like an investment DAO, legally yeah. it shouldn't be more than 99 people? Or is that is that correct? Yeah, so broadly there's a, depending on the type of investment DAO, a hard cap of either 100 members or 99 members. Um, you know, obviously not all DAOs are based in the U.S. and not all DAOs, you know, do their best to follow the law. So there are <laughs> DAOs which are, you know, more than 199 members. With our platform, we cap the amount of members you can have at 100. But if you want over 100, we're able to do that on with our kind of bespoke offering. So, you know, a DAO that is created to um, run a nonprofit, for instance, you know, may not have a similar cap and you may be able to have a thousand people, for instance. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's, you know, some degree of variance, but, you know, typically with investment DAOs, uh, you're going to cap it at 99 or or 100 members. So I was curious because with the proof for DAO that you guys, um, congratulations, by the way, on the launch, it was super smooth. Um, with proof for DAO, which is basically a DAO to, you know, collect proof passes and, and get, you know, to mint grails or any kind of other projects that proof gets uh, involved with you guys kept it at um, you know 99 or maybe 90 something but i was wondering like if somebody wants to trade that pass now and if somebody actually bought like two or three passes because i think the maximum amount of mints was three so if somebody from that minted three decides to sell they would have to sell all three yeah, so with Proofer, they capped the amount of members at, uh, I believe, 95. So that would give them a couple members of buffer room. And, you know, with Proofer, they have a constitution that kind of stipulates that um, just holding the membership token doesn't give you a right to be part of the DAO. Mm-hmm. You have to be approved by the DAO. So this is how they kind of navigate the 100-member limit. So for instance... If they're at 100 members and then somebody just sends a token to their friend and that means there's 101 token holders, their friend doesn't automatically become part of the DAO. They have to be actually approved by the DAO. So you may hold a token, but that to- token may not necessarily give you any rights. Okay, okay, gotcha. So we could essentially like make a DAO about anything, right? Like, What are you thinking about Like, great use cases that we could see in the future for DAOs? or in real estate or any other industry in your mind? Yeah. So, I mean, I think the most clear use case right now is probably in the investment context. 
And I think the reason for that is it's just more efficient to pool capital together. And the reality, particularly in Web3, is just the space is so large, a single investor can't possibly, you know, research everything. But if you have a group of 50 people or 20 people or 90 people, all of a sudden, you know, it's a lot you know, more realistic to cover more of the space in terms of investments. But outside of that, like um, a DAO can really be, you know, anything. I think there's better use cases and worse use cases. You know, Coterie Capital is working with um, a fellow proof member, actually, Drew Behrman, who is um, an experienced, um, you know, operator in the bourbon industry. And he's launching a, a bourbon distillery as a DAO. So we're working with him on you know, creating a, you know, a DAO, which allows people to, you know, own and have governance rights over a bourbon distillery. And at first That's it so may awesome. seem like kind of a strange use case, but it, in some ways it really is an awesome use case, right? Like who doesn't want to own part of a, you know, a bourbon distillery. And, you know, I'll, I'll be honest at first, I was a little bit, you know, hesitant because, you know, a lot of people have these kind of grand ideas and, you know, they want to raise the money and then they kind of want to figure it out. But, you know, Drew is a experienced kind of operator in the space and he, he knows what he's doing. Right. And the and the Dow portion is just something, you know, we're assisting on, but he knows how to run a kind of distillery. So I, I, I think, you know, investment Dow's is kind of the, the main, most simple use case. But I also think experienced operators in any sort of industry will, you know, start and continue to take advantage of the DAO format to, you know, pool capital more efficient, efficiently and, you know, run more traditional entities, you know, in a more kind of Web3, you know, native way. That's awesome. So what would be the main difference between, let's say, let's say if we take the the use case of um, like a, a bourbon or, um, or any kind of, let's say we're talking about a hotel. Uh, sure. What... Let's say we want to build a hotel. Why would we not like just create an NFT um, collection, which as you buy it, you get you know access to the hotel, and you're also part owner of the hotel. What are the nuances there? Yeah, so you do a pretty similar thing. You'd probably still have some sort of NFT relating to the hotel, but with a DAO, you can make it kind of more collaborative. So you could have those people with the NFTs you know, voting on things relating to the hotel. Okay. And maybe you'll recognize that, look, you know, most people don't know that much about the day-to-day management of a hotel. So maybe they won't be voting on, you know, what wage to pay, you know, housekeepers in the hotel, for instance. Mm-hmm. You know, but maybe they can vote on things like hiring, you know, a certain chef for the hotel or branding the hotel um, in a certain manner or having certain perks for members of the hotel. Because at the end of the day, if you have a large amount of people in the DAO, you have a large customer base. You have a large amount of people that are vested financially in the in the DAO being a, a success. So, you know, automatically maybe you have 500 people who are committed to the hotel and they're committed in a way which, you know, makes them not only want to stay in the hotel, but they want to promote their hotel to their own networks. And this creates a very interesting network effect where... You know, 500 people may not be that many in the context of a hotel, but 500 people that each have, you know, 30 friends, you Mm. know, all of a sudden it balloons very quickly. And then you can really create a brand from nothing. For um, sure. 
you know, very quickly. I mean, the, I'm also in the hospitality business. I actually own a restaurant as well. And, and um, mm-hmm. it's, it's funny because when you own something, you naturally want to talk about it. And it's yeah. like, it's so much easier to kind of sell it when you're like, hey, just come to, just come to my place. Go, go, come to, you know, come to my restaurant. Come to the, instead of saying like, hey, this restaurant's really good. But, yeah. you know, I really go a lot. But then, then again, like I'm not an owner or anything. Yeah, I mean, let's touch on the, on the restaurant example for a minute. Like, yeah. let's say you wanted to, you know, launch a new restaurant, right? Obviously, you need to, you know, either need to have a good chunk of money or you need to, you know, raise money from investors. So why would it be better to use the DAO format? You know, I think it would probably be better because, you know, instead of raising money from, you know, one person or maybe two or three people, instead you could raise money from 500 people, a thousand people. Then all of a sudden you have 500 or a thousand people, you know, that want to come to your restaurant. They want people to come to the restaurant. All of a sudden you have enormous customer base and using the DAO format, you can give them you know, some semblance of, you know, participation in the restaurant, you know, maybe they're not gonna, you know, vote on who the chef could be, but you could do that. But maybe you could have on the menu, a portion of the menu, which the Dow votes on, you know, what dishes are on that portion. Oh, that's so month, awesome. Right? Yeah. I mean, that'd be pretty fun, right? And that wouldn't be so difficult from a, you know, restaurant tours perspective. But, you know, as somebody who maybe would buy an NFT representing my, you know, share of that restaurant, you know, that would be a pretty, you know, fun thing to do. Or maybe every month there would be one day where it would be exclusive to DAO members. There's mm-hmm. lots of interesting use cases you can build in and take advantage of the DAO format for, you know, any industry, really. Yeah, because to, to me, I'm actually working on that. Uh, so basically, we want to launch, launch the first um, NFT bar, luxury bar in, uh, in Canada. And uh, we're... So basically, we're a group of um, restaurant owners. Like uh, together, we have four restaurants and bars, and uh, we're. It's a project that they already thought about. We already thought about like pre-pandemic, but mm-hmm. as you know, like with the pandemic, a lot of things closed. So we kind of like shifted our our idea. Like the more I got into NFTs, the more I'm like, that's so awesome. Like I saw what Gary did with Flyfish, and I was like, yeah. that'd be so cool. Like if it's a membership token that you know you need to hold the membership to be to have access to that because anyhow we wanted to make a speakeasy that's a luxury speakeasy right mm-hmm. so i was just wondering like would that apply as well if we had like two tiers of membership does that work with the dao yeah i mean that works great with the dao and we'd love to be the the platform you use to launch it but um yeah i mean that's totally something that can be done with a dao format you could have something like you know, just for example, and this is kind of similar to what Drew's doing with his liquor DAO, is um, having kind of a founder series NFT, which is more expensive and there's more limit. So, you know, they're more limited, and then you have more of a membership type NFT mm-hmm. where you know it's cheaper and there's you know a higher number of them. So you could totally do something, you know, just spitballing here, but you could say, I don't know, I have fifty kind of Genesis NFTs you know, price them at a higher point, And then these members would have, you know, more voting rights in the DAO, or maybe they'd get, you know, a free drink every time they visit or, you know, yeah, a well, discount. The, the like way, that. the way that we structured it is we, we wanted 2,500 tokens total and sure. uh, 500 of them would be like the higher tier, let's say like a, a like a diamond tier. And then yeah. the, the, the other 2000 would be like a gold, gold membership. Right. And the like the gold membership would basically give you access to the 
to the NFT bar. You you can make reservations and everything. And then the 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 diamond has like obviously its perks, which is like you can actually use the like on times when we're closed, you can use the speakeasy for private corporate events. You can, you know, you can rent it out. You can uh we also we also have um a cabin, a cabin that we bought uh, in Canada where we can if you're a diamond member, you can be you have access to rent that cabin on mm-hmm. on the weekends or anything like for a very cheap price or even you know we didn't think about it exactly yet but it could even be free in some way but yeah. you know all these things like i think it's just so exciting because it it gives like a, a different layer to the relationship you have with your customers yeah no i totally agree and i i think you know the the idea is is excellent and i think it could just be taken to the next level by giving you know members Governance. not only these perks but you know, also, you know, a say in, in how the speakeasy actually operates. Like, I mean, even just on the drinks menu every month, there could be one drink, which the Dow decides on, right. You know, something like that, it's not going to cost, you know, you as a, you know, experienced kind of, you know, person in the space, anything more, right. But it, you know, gives people, you know, a feeling of influence and it really just takes things to the next level. Not only do they have like, you know, these benefits you're talking about, being able to rent out the place, you know, that sort of thing, but they are also able to, you know, kind of affect, you know, the future of the place and how it looks moving forward. And I think that just will make people, you know, even more excited than they already are. And how does that work? Like your voting system on a DAO? Do you, do you go through like a, like, a, a, like reaction on discord where you, it's like thumbs yeah. up for this and thumbs down or how does it actually work? So it's it's almost as simple, but it's a little bit you know more professional, I, I think. <laughs> um, but we we um, are integrated with Snapshot. Snapshot Labs is kind of like the premier voting tool for DAOs in the space. So we work with um, DAOs on setting up like a custom Snapshot you know interface for them. So essentially, you can decide who's able to propose votes and what these votes can be about. And someone proposes the vote and you, um, before you, you know, kind of set up the DAO, you'll think about, you know, what percentage of votes do you need to pass? What type of proposal? And then people use their, their token to actually vote. Mm-hmm. And then, um, depending on the, the outcome of the vote, you know, um, it'll determine whether the proposal passes. So somebody could, you know, start a vote to, you know, in your context, for example, change the drink of the month from an, you know, an old fashioned to a, a margarita, right? And in your constitution, you'd say, oh, you know, this type of vote needs 51% to pass or 67% to pass. And then if it passes, you know, then, you know, the proposal will be executed. And if it doesn't pass, it doesn't pass. Mm, so interesting. Um, to kind of steer away from just my personal interest because I kind of want to get a, get on certain topics too. Thank you so much. I, well, we should actually discuss afterwards. Actually, uh, I'm super interested with this. Um, so I read in your Twitter bio that you're interested in law and uh, you mentioned commercial real estate. So tell me a bit about that. Like what made you gravitate towards these fields and in industry? So, I mean, I'm currently in law school actually. So that's where my legal interest comes from. And I did my undergrad in British law. So I guess I have some sort of interest in law. And naturally with Web3 being such a kind of new space, there's a lot of legal complexities that need to be challenged. So I, I do like um, 
you know, keeping up to date with that and, you know, looking into some of the more interesting legal questions in the space. Um, and then with, with real estate, you know, I've done some work in, you know, real estate in the past and, you know, I find the industry fascinating. So that's kind of just where that interest, you know, comes from. Do you, um, are you able to talk with like professors about the current state of web three in terms of law too? Yeah. So, I mean, unfortunately, um, there's very little knowledge, at least in my university, in the legal department, um, about Web3 and crypto. Uh, there are some professors that, you know, are kind of interested, um, you know, but largely I haven't spoken to too many professors that are, you know, really in depth on the space. I have spoken to, you know, lawyers and law professors, not at my university, just through, you know, Twitter and that sort of thing. Um you know, but I'm optimistic that a lot of this is going to change over the next kind of couple of years. Yeah, because I feel like right now it's still like murky waters, right? Like it's yeah. it's such early days that everything is a bit like in the gray zone. You don't know exactly what you should be doing, but obviously you try yeah. your best to, to obviously for, for things to make sense too. Um, how do you see Web3 influencing um, law in the future? You know, it's a good question. You know, I think with smart contracts, there's a lot of potential for kind of traditional world contracts to be trustlessly executed with smart contracts. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm kind of skeptical of the notion that, you know, lawyers are going to become obsolete or something like that because of crypto. Um, you know, I think there definitely will still be a need for lawyers, except I think a lot more um, of contractual work will be done digitally and in a trustless fashion. You know, I think there's a lot of opportunity for kind of on-chain arbitration and on-chain mediation, which I don't think has been explored enough yet. Um, but I think a lot of it depends on how the regulatory scene kind of plays out on the next over the next few years. Um, I'm not sure like the legal industry is one of the industries that's going to be the most transformed by Web3. Um, but I guess you never know. I guess we'll have to see, you know, what happens. Yeah, I think like the more that I dive into the space, the more I understand that the ideal world, at least in the little information that I've I've managed to gather over like the year or year and a half, is I feel like the ideal world would be a mix of centralized and decentralized, right? Like I don't think like everything will be decentralized. Yeah, I think you're probably right. Um, I mean, decentralization in itself is a very complicated kind of subject and... I think a lot of people that are, you know, very uh, strong advocates for decentralization um, don't really realize the extent of, you know, what, you know, decentralization actually means for people in that, you know, a lot of people like decentralization until they're, you know, actually, you know, the one who needs to do some work, right? They don't have somebody else doing it exactly. like, for them. So, well, it's, yeah, it's... I think it's a bit it's so. a bit like when you first dive into NFTs like yeah. all your actions it's it's your actions like there's nobody to come and and like say oh you got uh, you got scammed by this project like uh, let me get your money back right like <laughs> there's none of that and like I actually um oh my god like I still remember like I bought these stupid uh, NFTs which were like um, a flip version of an ape at some point yeah. And I remember, like, I was like, ah, oh, but maybe these are worth something. And the way that they advertised, I was just, like, so gullible. I was like, oh, yeah, you know what? Sounds like a good idea. But obviously, it was just a rug pull, right? But 
Yeah, it's tough. A lot of people like decentralization until, you know, they get scammed and they don't have anyone to return their money, right? But, you know, at the end of the day, I think you're you're right that the future looks like some combination of more decentralization, but still some elements of centralization. I don't think a, a fully decentralized world is something that's, you know, realistic, at least in the foreseeable future. You know, I think decentralization with like... um kind of appointed authority, appointed centralized authority for certain things is more likely to be the future than pure decentralization. Because at the end of the day, you know, for many things, you need skilled people to do these things and you don't want, you know, the rule of the masses to apply in every situation, right? Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, broad decentralization with, you know, aspects of centralization is, is probably more likely to be able to play out in a sustainable way. On that point, what do you think about the fact that, um, you know, NFTs are being traded on very, like, centralized platforms? Do you think that's going to change in the future? Like, because obviously, like, Looks Rare came along and, you know, now I'm, I, I, I didn't follow the news with them uh, that much. But, you know, OpenSea has such a big share of the market. How do you see that playing out? Yeah, I mean, I could definitely see um, uh, an NFT marketplace that's run totally as a DAO being successful. I've been a little bit skeptical of NFT marketplaces that aren't OpenSea just because of the market share that OpenSea has and how difficult this will be to overcome. You know, when Looks Rare came out, I, I didn't really think they'd have much of a shot and it seems like they didn't in hindsight. Um, you know, not that they're, you know, dead or anything yet, but um, it's just so difficult to overcome kind of that market share. Like OpenSea really is a monopoly in the space. So, you know, I'm skeptical of a lot of these projects that, you know, hope to be the next OpenSea. Any future plans for Coterie? These are the two services that you're offering right now, which is a service like as you go onto the platform, the, the website you fill out and it's like, you know, almost like plug and play. And then the other one is more personalized. Do yeah. you have more like your, can you share some of your projects for the future? Sure. So, you know, right now we're focused on, um, developing further tooling for the DAO management side. So this is tooling for, you know, after you've launched a DAO, allowing you to control more things, uh, making it easier for our users. So we were doing some development there. You know, we thought a little bit about expanding to, you know, other chains, you know, maybe doing a coterie that works on Solana, for instance. Um, but we haven't uh, decided whether that's the route we're going to go yet. Right now, our focus is, you know, making sure the, the process we currently have is, you know, the most efficient for users and then expanding what users are able to do after they've, you know, launched their DAO. And then, you know, personally, I'd like us to um, kind of keep, you know, expanding our work with these personalized DAOs because there's a lot of, you know, groups doing very interesting things in the space. And I think this is a very underserved part of the market. You know, a lot of groups, you know, would like to start a DAO but there's no solution that works for them. So they're, you know, looking for, you know, a group, you know, hopefully like us that can, you know, work, work with them start to finish and, you know, really develop a kind of customized, you know, platform for them. You know, it's exciting times right now. And uh, I, I really commend the fact that you guys are, are, making these things possible for people because honestly like I tried, like I'm getting into smart contracts and everything. I'm, I'm starting to, code in some way 
but yeah. my God, is it complicated? And like the moment something doesn't doesn't exactly work, you never know what's the exact thing. Yeah. No, it's very it's very complicated, especially if you're not technical. And then the other thing with smart contracts is, you know, even if you're able to teach yourself enough code to develop the application, you want to be very careful that you're, you know, developing it in a way which is, you know, safe in the sense that there's a lot of people in the space that all they do is look for smart contracts to try and exploit them, right? The last thing you want is to, you know, develop a smart contract, you know, get a lot of people on board, raise a lot of money, and then have the funds stolen, or have users compromised mm-hmm. in a certain way, right? And at the end of the day, you know, I think that just, you know, means that, you know, even for people that are slightly technical, it's more sustainable for them long-term to, you know, work with teams that have already built stuff in the space and, you know, know their, that their processes are safe and reliable to kind of build out, you know, tooling and functionality. At least try 100%. to learn a bit. Learn a bit, but you know, at the end of the day, like let people that are experts at what they do do what they have to do. A hundred percent. It's definitely good to understand what the experts are doing, but you know, if you try and be an expert in every category, you're gonna end up being at best, you know, average in every category. <laughs> awesome. I think that's a good way to end the podcast. Um Abe, thank you so much for doing this. And uh until next time. Thanks, Martin. I appreciate you having me on and it was a lot of fun.